we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day Podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. The national championship game is set. Conversations with both coaches, Dan Hurley of Connecticut and Brian Dutcher of San Diego State. And should there be a seismic change in the way the women's and men's final four Final Fours are conducted. This is the College Game Day podcast, Sunday, April 2nd. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel in our respective hotel rooms somewhere uh, across the city. I just Houston. cleared some shorts and boxers off the counter behind me because I realized they were in the shop. So I'm just going to fully admit that off the top. <laughs> That's why I got over in the corner with the curtain behind me. Uh, just to let the good people know, Pete and I will be dining together later this evening. I will be paying off the bet which was pete wagered that there would be a team seated seventh or lower to make the final four which happened with ford atlantic and they darn near made the national championship game if not for lamont butler and the first which i sort of forgotten pete the first win or lose buzzer beater in final four history the other ones that we think of were all winner overtime you know that that type of thing. It was uh, it was one of the most memorable shots in the history of the tournament. Was it Chris Jenkins down? No, winner overtime. Interesting. Okay, all right. I did. I thought and Chris so, Jenkins was and down for some reason. So was Jalen Suggs, and even the one that um, Lorenzo Charles, the follow up of the Derek Wittenberg shot, also uh, winner overtime. Wow! How about that? I'm briefly distracted because I called it the steak 48 menu. I was trying to find the most expensive thing um, on it uh, here just to, uh, I already texted Reese today that I was going to get the tomahawk. Um, it looks like there's a, uh, there's a uh, 22 ounce bone and ribeye for $94. So maybe I'll, uh, uh, maybe I'll, maybe well, I'll, maybe I'll start there. <laughs> you'll be able to do more damage than that because we ate there on Friday night. So oh, I will be I'll be going uh, two times in three days to this establishment, and I don't think they're going to knock anything off the bill. But it's it's quite good. We over ordered. Um, we wow. over ordered the other night. We had a big table, but we got a we'll have to do that again. Hungry? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to do that <laughs> if you don't want to. And that one already. Uh, the first one got into the pocketbook uh, a little more than expected the other night, and now this one will. This one at least is expected. So, by this bet's being paid off here and not in like. We'll raise a glass to Dusty May for you. Yes, and as I as I told you earlier, I'm not really worried about how much you spend because I'm expecting the bill to be split among uh, Jerome Tang, Rick Barnes. Both of whom lost to Ford Atlantic, uh, Matt Painter, who didn't get there to play them, and Penny Hardaway, who I, I may end up making money on this deal by the time it's all over. <laughs> once, I send them, once I send them all their share of costing me here. Yeah, it is interesting to think of like the Penny Hardaway experience right now, watching FAU like a nose hair from the national title game. And like Memphis was a call away from winning that game. And mm -hmm. probably should have won that game. I had picked Memphis to be Purdue in the second round. Now my bracket was terrible. Like I mean, just like like rotten fish left in the sun, you know, on the equator for three weeks. Terrible. And uh, but I did, you know, we all saw Purdue's vulnerability. It wasn't like I had some like right. yeah. you know X-ray right. vision or anything. But boy, was that a bad matchup for Purdue. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, what what will you remember, Reese, about this final Saturday? Um, I'm not sure how you consumed it exactly because I know you were in and then you, you obviously had a four hour game day um, in sweating gravy heat. And uh, yeah. and, and um, I'm just curious, what, what will you take away? It, it will be the comeback, the missed opportunity for Florida Atlantic and the tremendous comeback and shot by Lamont Butler. Now, I'm hesitant to put this out there, Pete, because I, I always try to be conscious of the fact of how 
um, how blessed we are in terms of what we get to do, how we're treated, all of those types of things. So I don't want anyone to misconstrue this as a complaint. But in these giant dome stadiums, and some of them, some of them, the sight lines are better for where they put us. And since we are not rights holders uh, for the NCAA tournament, ESPN does not get the best seats. And I went in for the first half of the Miami UConn game. Okay. To just so just so I could say that I went in, but I had been in that building before previous Final Fours, knew it was not a great sightline. So once I kind of recovered from, you know, got a bite to eat or whatever after the show, I just stayed in the Billis and I stayed in the trailer and watched the uh, FAU San Diego State game there. And so I I was in the trailer and watched that. It was actually I think just probably just the two of us at the end uh, that that were in there watching. Maybe a couple of other people around. But when I went in for the first half of Miami UConn, it didn't leave because of, you know, of the game, which was in hand. I left because I couldn't see. I was sitting in a less comfortable chair, still watching on television, watching the giant yeah. screen in the arena. And I had, you know, post game. So I, I went back to the trailer yeah. for the second half. And, I, you know, look, I love being there. You love soaking up the moment. But we're going to go pretty much up to tip off with a pregame show Monday night. Yes. And sightlines are going to be the same. I'm going to watch on television. I know that that probably sounds bad and people going, how crazy are you? Why would you do that? But you go in there and and, and again, I don't mean this as a complaint. It it just is what it is when you're playing basketball in in a football stadium. Can't see, you know, except I'll probably just stay in the trailer. Yeah, so that's good because if you're not there, we'll get another epic finish and you'll regret not going in. So that'll be good for all the viewers, all the listeners, and me who has to write a story, uh, who has to write a story about it. it. NRG is uniquely in our football listeners. Some of them may go to the title game, which is also going to be held here in football mm-hmm. this year. It is a uniquely difficult venue to get in and out of. And again, that's not a complaint. Like, you know, there's people doing a lot harder things in the world, but I can. I can relate to you not wanting to, while it is just crossing the street to where, you know, to where the set is, that is like, it is a, it is a logistical slog, uh, you know, going, going in and out of that, uh, going in and out of that, that building. We, we had uh, a pretty easy time with that. That was, For me, it was just more, and again, I, I, I listened to myself and I said, this sounds like you're whining. I honestly don't mean it that way. It is what it is, wherever the media yeah. seats are. You, you just, you can't watch the game in person from where they want you to sit. I mean, you, Especially if the students, like the Miami students, were standing up in front, you, you literally couldn't see, and it's okay. They were having fun, yeah. And we were a long way away. Even if they were seated, you really couldn't see the game the same way you could in a basketball arena. You know, a yes. typical basketball arena. Even if you were up top, you know, you'd be able yes. to see it a little better. It is an awesome. Like you walk in and you're like, "Wow, look at this basketball court in this football stadium." But I would think seventy percent of the people who buy tickets in these arenas have poor or mediocre to poor user experiences. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I, somebody sh- sh- put a shot on Twitter of like the, the highest deck of NRT. <laughs> I mean, there's like zero chance anyone could see, you know, anyone could see anything from, uh, for, mm-hmm. from all the way up there. Now there's something to be said, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit when we talk final fours for the inclusivity of the event, right? The dad in the Houston mm-hmm. suburbs takes his son, they see a buzzer beater, for years to come, that's a moment they have together. There's sure. some value in that. They move the fountain foot. There's mm-hmm. some value to that. Like that, you know, the all are welcome, you know, fans, uh, basketball fans, people. I, I do think it's a good way to grow the game and to grow the sport. But it does not, uh, if you aren't really low in these football stadiums, they are very difficult places to watch the games. And, and it's even a different experience when you are because you're much farther away from the floor than you are, say, if you go even, you know, even to an NBA arena or one of the newer yes. college arenas, you know, relatively newer, like uh, Yum Center in Louisville, I think is a spectacular uh, arena. It's newer yes. and, you know, you're yeah. infinitely closer to the floor than you are even with really good seats in one of the football stadiums. But, you're, but your point's well taken, and it's a fair one, that it gives more opportunities to fans to be able to come and share that experience and just to soak up the atmosphere because, um, for all of the things that the NCAA, NCAA might rightly be criticized for, they do a pretty good job of making it an event. And, you know, yeah. there's more uh, there's more there for fans to do than just to, you know, make their way into the game, which certainly that's the that's the centerpiece mm-hmm. and that's the main objective. But there are other things to do as well. 
So, you know, I understand the necessity of it in terms of finances and everything, but um, I do think that just for people going to a game that, you know, it, it, it's a, it can be, depending on where you're sitting, a, a, tough, a tough way to see a game. Yeah. So I was opposite baseline uh, from, from Lamont Butler shot. I had a pretty good view of it. Uh, where I was before, I couldn't tell how deep he had gone because the floor is raised, so I'm like eye level mm. to the floor. So I didn't realize how close he was to dribbling out of bounds. And yeah. then I realized how kind of deep wing he went back. I did think mm. he went into no man's land. I did not think he was going to get – well, let's put it this way. I was wondering if he'd get a shot off and fairly confident when he took that little hesitation dribble, he was not going to get a good one off. Um, mm -hmm. and I thought F FAU had played, uh, had played pretty good defense. Now, when he, he went back through his legs and took the dribble left and did the pull up, I was like, okay, that's a pretty good shot. And at that point, the, the, the defender Boyd, who'd done a pretty, really good job cutting him off and really him, getting him indecisive, had a hard time recovering for a great closeout. Now, again, that was high end defense the whole way down. There's no criticism of Boyd here, but it was it was an interesting play to watch unfold uh, from that angle. And uh, so I I spent a bunch of time with Boyd after the game. You know, followed him, wrote a story about him for .com, and I had this is this will be kind of we talk about this sometimes recent thing you'll remember ten years from now. So I, I, Boyd was great. He had a halogen grin. He answered the same question many, many, many times over in, in mm -hmm. with a, with a, you know, uh, with a great poise to him. Um, he was a, a delightful young man who, who told his story and his family story many times. Um, so leave there. And I walk by the FAU locker room and there's three minutes left of availability. So I was like, you know what? I'll peek my head in. I had met a couple of the assistant coaches through, you know, throughout the weekend and I was get some perspective on how they tried to, stopped the last play in the, you know, the last few minutes uh, of the game. And I opened the door to the locker room and NRG stadium is a little bit of a tired building and the door closes and it bangs really loud. And Reese, it was like, <laughs> it was like if you went into a monastery and you rang the mm -hmm. biggest gong in the world. I mean, that thing went like it sounded like a thunderclap in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of a library, it was like, oh my gosh, because you forget just the complete devastation that that's in, yeah. you know, that's in the locker room. And, uh, you know, I just walked around and looked at, looked at all those guys and I was like, wow, like that was just one of the more difficult ways I'd seen a team lose. I believe they were up 14 with 15 minutes to 14. go or something like, yeah. Um, and San Diego State's biggest comeback of the season on that stage. Yeah. Yeah, I think fifth biggest in Final Four history. Um, mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah, if I'm if I'm if I'm right about that, and they were up three with forty five seconds left. Like if you go yeah. win probabilities, you're up. You know, you need you need two possessions to uh, to to come back and win the game in uh, in in regulation. And give them credit the the little play they ran for Jaden Ladee, I thought was like the perfect quick strike uh, out of a set situation that that set the table for that. And I thought the post defense that they played on the driving layup by FAU and then the quick clear were also like things that had to happen if you're not going to call a timeout and you're not going to foul. Like a, a lot of things went right for them in that last minute. Yeah, I talked to Ryan Dutcher about that. And then Billis pointed out last night, uh, giving the ball to Ladee in that situation and telling him to go get it is is pretty, uh, pretty strong too. And he also, uh, by not calling the timeout, he didn't have his best offensive team on the floor. So mm -hmm. there were some, uh, he was somewhat limited in terms of options, you know, Lamont Butler being the guy who they wouldn't have minded going to get it anyway, but they had three bigs on the floor. I think too. So they yeah. didn't have a, they didn't have a lot of creators, you know, in terms yes. of, of making shot. But then I say that, but then they, he did create that huge shot yeah. that you referenced. But all of those things are going to be dissected because they're at the end of the game. But where Florida Atlantic lost the game, in my judgment, was that span, and I should look it up to make sure, but I think it was 65-63. And they got their hands on defensive rebounds at least three times, maybe four. Maybe one, maybe one was a clean offensive rebound for San Diego State, but almost all of them, Florida Atlantic, had a hand or two hands on the ball and could not squeeze it it either went out of bounds it got deflected 
they just lost it. Something happened. And San Diego State missed shot, missed shot, missed shot, made the shot. And I and I think it tied the game. I think it's 65. Could be wrong about that. But it tied the game. And I uh, I looked up and said, well, at least Fort Atlanta gets the ball back now. You know, because yeah. they, they literally could not get the rebound. And yeah. I thought that was the point where I thought, even though, as you said, they regained the lead, and that's to their credit, but I thought they're in real trouble here because they had, they had missed some opportunities, maybe not to put real distance, but to kind of keep the game uh, in their control. And, and they sort of that, – that there were missed opportunities in not being able to force San Diego State to, to on most occasions anyway – be one and done in terms of uh, taking a shot and not allowing an offensive rebound. There was about a a stretch, I want to say, from like the mid-sixes to the mid-fours time-wise, about a two-minute, ten-minute stretch where San Diego State had seven offensive rebounds. Mm -hmm. And that was like more than half than they had on the day. And Mm -hmm. uh, John Fanta from Fox had a great line on Twitter. He said it felt like they were on the power play. Because they just kept yeah. going. Yeah. And I thought it was. Right. I wish I, yeah. I, I wanted to steal it. It was that good of a. It was that good of an observation. So credit to John for that. It was, but it just felt like they couldn't do it. And uh, I think it was Elijah Martin after the game just said, "Hey, that was a turning point. You know what I mean? That was a turning point yeah. when 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 we couldn't get the ball back. And uh, yeah, and I think that is a little bit of what the San Diego State team is, and the case for them to win. Which I don't think it's a great case on Monday, but the case for them to win is their collective will and strength will sap you and they can, they can, uh, I, Jim Morris said this about UConn and the way he wanted to design the program. He said, we want to drag you out to deep water and then keep you there until you can no longer swim. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. how San Diego state wins basketball games. They just figured out a way to stay in the game and drag them out to deep water. And then eventually, eventually they drown. Well, I'll tell you this, drag UConn out into deep water. They'll drown you. I yes. mean, I, I, UConn, in my judgment, and, you know, I, I'm the, I'm a big fan of the character and competitive character of San Diego State, and I have great respect for what Brian Dutcher has done. I'm not a big fan of their style of play, and, but it can drag teams out into the proverbial deep water, and it can mm-hmm. diminish teams that are highly skilled that perhaps uh, aren't accustomed to it or ready for it. And I, or even if they are ready for it, they think they are, but they really aren't because San Diego State is so good at what they do. And they're so physical and they bump you. I've told this story several times to the point that Seth Greenberg is irritated with me for bringing it up, but it was just so striking in the open practice and final four on Friday. And look, a lot of teams do this, I know, but you come out and that thing, which is largely a showcase practice, you know, usually the teams go somewhere else and have their real practice. And the first several minutes of practice, there was no basketball. They, they didn't use a basketball. You know, they were they were using blocking pads and, you know, and, and box outs and closeouts with and, you know, Seth said, well, you hate box out drills. I said, no, but you can you can do them and still use a basketball. And, uh, did they run know, the Oklahoma dude, drill, Reese? <laughs> they did not run the Oklahoma drill, but they could. And but <laughs> I, they—that's how they win, and they're really, really good at it. But but UConn is equipped to handle it, and and they have more offensive weapons, and even the offensive weapons that they have, uh, the majority of them are far more potent than San Diego State's offensive weapons typically are. So, um, you know, no game is a foregone conclusion. It's not UConn's birthright despite their success in the national championship game historically to win the game. They're not going to rule out there and say, hey, we have four championships and we're in the state of Texas. We own this place. This is over. It's not going to be that way. And I don't think UConn will approach it that way. But that said, as good as San Diego State has been all year, and they've been tremendous, I I will be, and I've been surprised in this tournament, obviously, several times. I'm paying for a stake tonight, but um, I'll be very surprised if UConn doesn't win the national championship on on Monday night. Yeah, I uh, I, I feel the same way. Like I'd love to be surprised because it would be an unbelievable story. Uh, I was with San Diego State in Louisville. 
they're 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 a great team. Um, they they have a lot of charisma. There's great storylines. What they built. Um, certainly, they're not a blue blood, but I think they have built their program into one of the more established in college basketball. You ever been to game at uh, Viejas Arena, Chris? I have not. I've heard his uh, Bill has told me it's phenomenal. So it's a great point. It is raucous, rollicking, and wonderful in all the great ways that make college basketball college basketball. And you don't just have an environment like that. You have to build an environment like that. You need winning. You need buy-in from your student body. Um, yeah, it is It is the show, as they call it, is just beautiful, rollicking fun. So, again, this isn't, you know, they, their basketball history compared to FAU's basketball history are just completely different. FAU plays in a gym with 2,900 people. The ISL is like 12,000, and it's sold out every night. It is a hard ticket. It's one of those arenas you go down in. It's like almost underground, and that kind of adds to the the ambiance and the, and the atmosphere. But they've been they've been good for the better part of uh, almost two decades now, right? They have been a, a, a legitimate, strong, and the Kawhi Leonard season, they were obviously one of the best teams. COVID season, they were, you know, slated to be a one seed. So there's just, it, it has been built to this and it is cool. And and look, like if they do win this, it's a unbelievable breakthrough. Um, this was a discussion point. I wrote a news story about Louisville. I think is kind of interesting about San Diego State that they plan on using the geographic challenges of the Big Ten that USC and UCLA mm-hmm. are going to face as a recruiting tool whether they're in the Mountain West or the Pac-12, which they'll probably be in pretty soon, they basically said, hey, if you don't want to fly 2,800 miles to your road games, stay here, come Southern California, and play regionally and save your body and don't slog all around the country for TV money. And I, I, they, were, they were unabashed about that. They played in Orlando in the first round, and they were like, that's exhausting. We would never want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I thought yeah. that was kind of a – an interesting, and I bring that up only to say, like, they're they have their flag planted and their destination. Uh, Lamont Butler's a guy who could have gone to a bunch of other high major schools. He's a Southern California kid. Sanders State recruited him early, and, and and he went there, and is obviously uh, he will obviously go down in history as the uh, unless someone hits a bigger shot tomorrow, that'll be the biggest shot in Sanders State history for a while. Uh, let let me uh, well first of all, I touch on that. You'll hear a little bit of that, though he, he certainly glossed it over in, in my conversation with Brian Dutcher a little bit later on about this being a pivotal moment for San Diego State, both as an athletic program and their university, a chance to elevate the profile. And of course, you know, he did the obligatory, it's a great place already and all of that kind of thing. But, you know, should they wind up in the Pac-12 or something like that, um, th- this is an opportunity. And if you win a national championship, and we've already done it because they're in the final four in the title game, but if they win a national championship, that even brings it to a different level. You mentioned Butler's shot, and it brings me to an exercise I was asked to complete for game day on Monday night. Greatest tournament shots of all time. Mm. I I compiled my list, uh, much like when we talk about ranking football teams or ranking basketball teams for that matter, but particularly if you're selecting playoff teams in football. There's some science to it. There's some art, meaning um, from the art standpoint, just broadly speaking, degree of difficulty of the actual shot. Um, The science part, stage, significance, historically, uh, all of those types of things. I thought I have Butler right now, and I might have it a little underrated, but right now I have it ranked sixth. And I have the Christian Leitner shot against Kentucky as number one, where I have just ahead of Chris Jenkins shot. And I know I know what the argument's going to be. The Chris Jenkins shot won the national championship. The Leitner shot only got them to the final four. I put Leitner's shot there for this reason. A dynasty was on the line, many dynasty of two years, back-to-back championship. That was on the line. His legacy was on the line. It was highly improbable. Um, you know, full court play. Wayne seconds down one? So I, that's why I give it the slightest of edges over Jenkins, even though certainly the prize was bigger for Jenkins. But I, I give it to Leitner, and I've got Butler ranked sixth right now in all all-time tournament shots. Was Duke down one, Reese? Uh, they, yes. 
Yes, they were because they, yeah, they were going to lose because Sean Woods had uh, Sean Woods had scored to put Kentucky ahead. But remember, that was an elite eight. That was an elite eight game rather than yes, one hundred four, one hundred three. God, I wish yeah. we had a few one hundred four, one hundred threes in this tournament. Well, the women, the women just did it. They did. <laughs> they did. One hundred two to eighty five or something like that. So it can be done, I think. But I went Leitner, Jenkins, Suggs. Okay. Michael Jordan, uh, Keith Smart, and Butler. That's a that's a that's a good list. I don't uh, I don't see any uh, any glaring oversights. How many how many were you at any of those? Um, I was not. Um, how about that? I'm looking, well, I mean, you got to think about the difference in what how my career has been built and what yours has been. Yours has been going there and as i've been hosting a lot of times sure. uh, no, no. prior to game day it was like back in the studio anchoring those things and i was still in local television when leitner hit his shot yeah. uh jenkins i missed uh because of what you just said jay will and i talked about this on the show yesterday and for the reasons that i outlined earlier it was difficult to see so same i was building. in for part of the game and we went yeah same building and so we went back out and because of the delay all of us and we had we would have been out anyway because we have to be on television immediately afterwards sure um but you can't um, leave with everybody if that doesn't correct yeah and so um we heard the roar from from the stadium outside you know we're we're quite a ways away and we could hear the roar from inside the stadium before we saw the shot go in and yeah. you know they were they were bringing it up, so you knew what happened. But mm-hmm. you, because you heard the roar, and then it was like you know a, a couple seconds later, uh, he he made the shot. I walk back in the press room, and I see Joel Barrier, ACC Network colleague, and uh, I looked at him, and we're in Houston, and there's a improbable dagger shot to determine a Final Four game, and I was like flashbacks, and he was like, "For real, man, yeah," and like you you because it. You know the scenarios were always going to be different in in some ways, but it was uh, it was it was interesting. You couldn't help think of being in the building that night when uh, when when Jenkins hit that uh, when Jenkins hit that moonshot. I don't think Joel had been back in the building. Not that he would have had big reason yeah. to be, but I think this was his first time back in the building. He said um, since since that happened, and I think that you know Nate Britt, one of his teammates uh, on that Carolina team brought Chris Jenkins down to play pickup with the Tar Heels shortly thereafter that. I'm not sure that uh I'm not sure that everybody was in love with that, but but I think that happened. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh it was the same end too if I if I if I wrote it, so I hope I was right. But it was the yeah. same end of the floor, the same basket. Um yeah. now a little bit obviously there were some different things too, but uh yeah, Houston. Uh, Houston has delivered us a little bit of a, a little bit of drama here over the years. Well, one thing it also delivered us, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I tend to look at life in an opt- optimistic perspective. But uh, uh, my friend Jim Calhoun has often gotten irritated with me when I've mentioned that the uh, UConn Butler championship game in 2011 uh, was the worst important game in the history of sports. So I'm hoping we get. I'm hoping that we get something better than that uh, from the con in San Diego State. And by the way, uh, I I reached out to Jim today. I was trying to get him to come on the show, but he's actually back in Connecticut, uh, battling oh, okay. a bad cold. So I'm hoping. I hope he feels better, and obviously he'll be he'll be rooting on rooting on the Huskies as well. This is a it's an unusual championship game, Pete, for sure. Um, no five seeds ever won the tournament. San Diego State's a five seed. UConn, um, you know, is a four, but talent level is more like a one this year. They just had that stretch in the middle, and then they didn't win the Big East tournament and so forth. So I'm, I'm not going to say they were underseeded because some of that seeding is based on your resume, but talent wise, they're like the they're like the, all the teams that were seeded one this year but it's still an unusual matchup but you had you had the behemoths 
make it in the in the women's championship and Caitlin mm-hmm. Clark with a virtuoso performance in the final four game to hands out Carolina LSU first a three seed. Sorry to cut you off, but like I see LSU yeah. as a three seed and they, they're like 35 and two. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> no, the cream on this podcast. Like that blew my yeah. mind. Like again, I haven't watched a, a ton of the women's game. Now I've watched some of the tournament games, obviously was, was mm-hmm. captivated uh, at the, at the semis, uh, the other night, but I was like, that don't look like a two seed to me, a three seed to me. Yeah, I know. I think it's because I think it's because they couldn't beat South Carolina, and it, that yeah. was the final. Four, final four ended up being the quintessential styles make fights, right? You know, for whatever yeah. reason, LSU had a hard time with South. Well, no, the reason they had a hard time with South Carolina is they're really, really stinking good. good, you know. Yeah. But um, Iowa was able to uh, turn in that performance from Clark, who is just you know. A thrilling player to watch, but then LSU was able to able to have some answers. But it's been wildly popular the the women's tournament. You know, setting ratings records on television. A lot of it's they have star power. They also have a juggernaut to shoot for in South Carolina, which is a little bit different from the the men's tournament this year. What do, what do you make of it? I mean, we, they they've scored. You know, yeah. and not all the time. There have been some low-scoring uh, women's tournament games too, but they there have been, uh, you know, one hundred two points in the championship game for LSU. I think that's right. Whatever it is, one hundred two eighty-five yeah. or something. Yep. so. Um, you know, I mean, they're they're doing uh, they're doing a lot right, and aesthetically, maybe you know, maybe there's some things that the men's game um, could learn as well. Quarters, yeah. maybe a little more cool. open play, that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So this is my twentieth men's final four that, that I've been lucky enough to cover. And that obviously all of those, the women's final four is run congruently through the event. Now they obviously don't overlap the games, but so you're out with coaches, you're out with reporters, you're out with different people. This was the first time I felt like people at the men's final four stopped and made their plans around, okay, if we're going to go to dinner, we need a TV around the women's final four. Like it just felt different here. Now have games been on. I remember being out with some Notre Dame coaches a couple of years ago and they all had their phones up because the Irish women, like people were watching mm-hmm. the final four, but this was now like, we are building our evenings on the, mm-hmm. on the, on the first off day here. Um, so I guess it'd be the, the Friday night going into the semi, like, like the, 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 the group of coaches uh, and folks I was out with late on Friday night or later on Friday night, like, Nobody was getting up and leaving that restaurant until the women's game was over. Like, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, running commentary. It wasn't just on in the background. Like people were locked right. in, especially yeah. as the game, as the game came down. So again, my observation just generally to that is like anecdotally, you could feel a difference in the men's final four city on how the women's game was, was being consumed. And just generally, I think it's great. I think it's great for the women's game. And it has reignited Reese, the the I think the conversation and debate. And I talked to Gino or am about this today. I happened to run into him in the hallway at NRG. By the way, he told me this is great. This is the first men's final four he's attended since 1981. He lived in Philly and he's like, I went. He was like, it was the day that Reagan got shot, which is yeah, great. Obviously, yeah. we don't want Reagan, we don't want him to get shot. But no, um, no. it was just but it but it was funny. So he stood on a table and I, I, you know, I, one of the reasons I really enjoy interacting with him is he has very strong opinions and he's not afraid to say mm-hmm. that, which to me is as a reporter is a delight. Be interesting, right? People may not all like Jim Bayheim, at least Jim Bayheim speaks his mind, right? And you know exactly mm-hmm. where he stands. And Gino has a little bit, he's earned, he's earned his pulpit, but he just basically said, look, I'm here in Houston. I haven't been at this event in 40 something years. He's like the Astros won the world series. They have an opening day here nobody's paying attention. The Rockets are playing the Rakers. Nobody cares. He said, this event swallows up the town. And he, and he brought that up because the NCA had formerly, or a, a, a law firm that studied the gender equity issues out of the 21 tournament had formally recommended that the men's and women's tournament be played together in the same city. I don't think this is a good idea because I think the women's tournament can stand on its own and should stand on its own and has a different grouping of fans. Um, and Gino was adamantly against it he said if this event is here all the momentum you have in dallas with those fan bases and people coming inside i saw emmett smith at the game i mean it was like a who's who up and down uh up and down uh the the spike lee seats there he said you lose all that dallas the, the game is enough to live on its own it's an alternative some people might not watch it still but six million people did the other night and i thought 
it was really well said and it was it was a really good point. Um, what's been your observation on the women and what do you think about combining the events? Well, I hosted the women's championship for three three years, I think. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, when we when we first at ESPN broadcast every game, and it was uh, it, it was a really fun TV experience because you were at the command center. We were able to you know move move games, sort of like old school CBS. Of like, yeah, sure. Hey, in Lubbock, in Lubbock, this is happening right now. We're going to take you out there. It was it was a blast. And the event fun. was, yeah, the event was tremendous as well. Um, I would agree with Gino generally, but I would be in complete favor of putting the men's and women's championship in the same city and run it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday under one condition. Okay. A condition that will never be met if we <laughs> move the men's game back to arenas because the atmosphere inside the women's championship games is pure basketball. Now you made great points earlier in the podcast about uh, opening it up for more people with the bigger venues, more people can come and experience the whole thing. And that is completely valid, but the intimacy that sort of makes basketball environments special is missing. And it is uh, it. Now you sacrifice some of the, big big feel that you get of playing something in a, in a giant dome stadium but the atmosphere that they have in the women's final four is really good and they've gotten really smart to play them in basketball arenas they still get big crowds and mm -hmm. and it feels like a huge basketball game so i would be in favor of it if they were willing to do that but something tells me with the old dollars and cents that come in with being able to put seventy thousand plus butts in seats that uh, that that probably won't happen, but that would that would be the condition. If they if they if they made that concession, then I would then I would support it. Otherwise, I think your your other points are the correct ones. That the women's championship has grown and developed to the point that it stands alone, stands on its own. That's obvious that it's that it's done it this year, and it's not the first year. This reminds me somewhat, and it's been more popular now than when I hosted it. But when I was hosting it, it was Diana Taurasi, and Gino uttered yeah. that line that that I now still use and borrow for different players, but only if they're ultra elite and make difference. Uh, Gino, you say we have Diana and you don't. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it was, and you know, that's, uh, you know, it was, uh, he, he, you're right. He's a great guy to great guy to cover. It was a great event then. I mean, it was, you know, Diana Tarazi against Carol Lawson, um, you know, Kim Mulkey, uh, won a championship at Baylor while I was, while I was covering it. So, um, you know, it, it does stand on its own. But if you move the men back to the arenas, then I then I would get on board. Um, so I asked Gina about Caitlin Clark today. Uh, this was before the uh, the Iowa LSU game had ended, and she was still kind of the buzz. I was curious what he thought, and uh, he was like, "I had that. It was you know, it was Diana." Um, but he said his middle daughter Alyssa, with one S, um, gave a great observation. He said that Alyssa told him that. Uh, Caitlin Clark is Pete Maravich. And I was That's, like, absolutely. Yeah. I thought That's it was a great right. it, Gino, Gino said, Gino said, I thought about it. And he said, you're right. They, that is, you know, she has free reign. She thinks she's going to make everything. And she usually does. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a really good, uh, a really good and in, in, in apt analogy. Now you could tell today that it ate at Gino a little bit, that all this magic was happening without him. This is the first time in 14 years, UConn has made the final four. I mean, he's had preposterous success. I did look to that. I don't think they've won the title since 17. That surprised me a little bit. Um, just yeah. Yeah. They've had some, they've had some heartbreak. They've lost a yes. couple buzzer beaters, lost a couple yep. games in, in final four and, you know, real devastating type fashion that has kept him, out of the uh, ultimate winner's circle for uh, longer than he is ever used to, for sure, because uh, what what he's built there and what UConn means in basketball right now, because you start looking at the long history of the game and the debate comes out. I saw someone wrote, and it was on .com, sort of matter of fact, Libby, UConn's not a blue blood. And I'm like, no. I mean, now if you want to, if you want to draw the line at 1950 and force, you know, force everybody to include, you know, Frank McGuire, Wilt Chamberlain, Adolph Rupp, and you know, 
and the great you know Bill Russell teams and all the way back there, and you have to have been good then. Okay, but for the last 25 years, uh, yeah. they they won more. Yeah, if they win, if they win another one, they will have won more than anybody. Already have. They've won in four decades now. Now, okay, you're splitting hairs a little bit because you snuck one in there in the nineties. Three different coaches, too. Now this is the third. Right, exactly. Which also, which also is uh, puts you in uh, great company with the quote unquote blue bloods. Yeah, they are one of them. They are they are the standard in terms of winning championships and their success uh, in the final four in national championship games is is stunning. You know the fact that they're you know what nine and one now or something like that or whatever it is. Yeah, nine. That's ridiculous that they're you know they're nine and one in in the final four. The only game they lost was to Michigan State in '09. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's been an unbelievable uh, unbelievable run of success. And I had heard uh, Danny Hurley downplay a little bit, like. Basically, he said we'd still be doing this stuff if we were in the American, and that is just like the right thing to say. But like, ain't no chance. Like, they, you know, David Benedict and everybody moving back to the Big East was just a a critical and necessary move for UConn to get to this point. And uh, all the credit goes to them and the administration there for basically in a time where they thought football could get them to the Big Twelve. Remember, they made the push for that mm-hmm. seven eight years ago. They thought football could lead the way. Now they know what they're where their you know bread is buttered, but that's just not how the DNA of college athletics worked. So I, I remember going to a game there about five years ago, four years ago. UConn was good, and um, they were playing Houston, and Houston was excellent. So it had been the best league game of the season, right? Uh, it was one of Kelvin's early, early really mm-hmm. excellent teams at Houston. He's had plenty of them. And it was like mid-February, and I remember going to uh, going to Civic Center in Hartford or whatever it's called now, XL Center, and uh, it was just it, there was people there, but it was dead. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, there were I, people in the yeah. seats, but there wasn't any environment. Because you know what? If you grew up in in Connecticut, there's a good chance you've never met anyone who went to the University of Houston ever. So it's hard to like or dislike them because they're just mm-hmm. so foreign to you, and so. Um, yeah, the, the, that decision was just a critical one from a university standpoint. And I think, um, uh, it, it has really been great for the big East, which I, I think we're on the cusp of a, a little bit of a Renaissance there too, with Patino going to St. John's and with Ed Cooley going to Georgetown. Um, I, I think that league could really get rejuvenated, you know, in a, in a really significant, it's been very good. Don't get me wrong. They had five teams in the tournament this year, but it could, it could become again, like regular season must see TV. Um, once you really start to to juice this up, which quite frankly the Big East needs and in college basketball needs. Well, it's UConn has a lot more in common with those schools that either don't play football or don't play FBS football than it does with any of the ones who are driven. And they I'm having a hard time thinking of anyone other than perhaps Duke, who, you know, is obviously you know locked into the ACC, who could legitimately and wisely make a decision on conference affiliation based more on basketball than football because they tried to do it as you mentioned based on football and it really uh in my judgment hurt their hurt their basketball brand and this has elevated it again and so they're they're one of the few them and duke, duke has the good fortune of not having to because they're in the yes. ACC at least as we speak now um, Arizona could be they, they, thinking about this, Reese. Now, again, they don't have to go to a Catholic league with no football to do it. But um, if they're going to go to the Big 12, it would be, a, you know, which is in the scuttle. I would shoot the, the president of, of Arizona himself has said he's been talking to Brett Yormark, right? So um, it's in the scuttlebutt phase. But if they did go, I think it would be a basketball forward decision. And they would say, you know what, we're going to go. And our basketball is going to go into the best basketball league. And we're going to have, you know, Baylor come in here and Kansas come in here. And it's going to be, you know, that that's going to rock uh, the McHale Center. But, yeah, I agree with you. There are there are less than five who would even that that question would even be pondered for. Well, you saw uh, and you might argue Kansas, but the renaissance of Kansas football 
uh, at least for this one season, has changed that a little bit. And I think they were a little shaken by the fact that the earlier realignment a few years ago, that people weren't beating down their door, you know, because of, um, you know, because of their basketball pedigree. I think they thought they would easily find a home. And at, at that time, when the Big 12 was shakier than it is right now, that was not readily apparent to them. So it it certainly has changed. I know you've got to you've got to start getting your appetite ready for you know. I am pretty hungry. Know. I'm not going to lie. I know. I know you are. Most expensive thing in the menu. The worst thing about it, the thing that's going to keep me from enjoying my meal is probably going to be your gloating. But uh, <laughs> I may I may hey, just have to, I may just need, have to it's have gentle needling. You know, I'm from the Northeast. You, you're stuck with me. You're going to get some sarcastic uh, barbs here. Back I may just forth, have to. So. I, I may I may seriously just have to eat rice so I don't get sick to my stomach with you with all you and all your northeast bloating and so forth. But I have not listened to Coach Corso who gives the the sage advice when you when you uh, when you lose say little when you win say less is that it right yeah, yeah. Uh, you know yeah, what I'm not, was, I'm not was, that <laughs> I was uh, I was downstairs at the hotel and ran into Lafonso Ellis and his son Walter they were about to go to the Lakers Rockets game. Oh, and he cool. said, what are you doing tonight? And I'm paying off a bet with them. Well, he said, what was the bet? And I told him, and I was like, thanks for listening to the podcast, Fonz. But um, <laughs> anyway, he, uh, he said, I would have been right there with you. I said, Fonz, Sweet 16, all he had left was FAU and Princeton. That was it. And, and still, I don't know, man. Sometimes We are uh, all owls. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, it just, uh, sometimes it's just your tournament. Sort of like uh, – uh, sort of like when uh, what Marcus Carr threw in that shot against Xavier or whatever it was. And I was like, yeah, you know, there were two or three Texas shots in that game. And I was like, you know what, X, it's been a good run. It's not your night. You know, it's just the way it goes sometimes. It just, it was your night, Pete. It was just, it was, it was just your night. The fly with I the had odds on my side. It was what, seven of the last eight tournaments, someone seven or higher had made the final four. Was that it? That might have been eight yeah, or nine. It was, yeah, yeah it was. It was a compelling but, but, percentage. Uh, I think Gil, uh, the the great statistician uh, for College Game Day, had like sent us all a bevy of those stats, and I was just like, "Why wouldn't that keep happening?" Well, because a lot of times when it's happened, it's been North Carolina, you know, and you still had some of those teams there that wasn't readily apparent. Yeah, there was a you Syracuse got, in why, there. Yeah, yeah. This is why this should be satisfying to you because you've got a true legit. You know, I know they didn't like it, but they're Cinderella. You know, I mean, they were. I'm just happy we're not in like Clemson or somewhere where there's not. And there are good steakhouses in Clemson. I want to pick on it. I'm glad we're not in a small southern town where we had to go to Saltgrass to, uh, you know, to, to pay this off. I hope they're not a sponsor. Would, but you know what I mean? A road, yeah, a roadside steakhouse, chain steakhouse. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I wish uh, I, I wish I were taking you to Bucky's instead of. Uh, <laughs> I, I like Bucky's. <laughs> I, <I'm laughs> <okay. laughs> oh, man. All right, my man. Yeah, we'll see. Wait. We'll see you at the steakhouse. Bring your appetite. I will. Uh, yeah, this was fun, man. Uh, hope everybody enjoys the game on Monday, and we'll uh, we'll see you on their side. You bet. This has been the ESPN College Game Day podcast. Thank you for downloading and listen to them wherever you prefer to get your podcast. Hey, here's a little something extra for you right now on the College Game Day podcast on the eve of the national championship game between San Diego State and UConn. I had a chance to sit down with Huskies head coach Dan Hurley. Here is that conversation in its entirety. Dan, what's the significance of this? I mean, from a basketball family, great heritage at UConn, and now one game away from the national championship. Yeah, I mean, it's so many things. It's uh, obviously a, a lifetime in the game. You know, as a player and as a coach at all different levels, um, you know, to get to this point, just utilizing all those experiences, obviously growing up in a household of, uh, you know, with a Hall of Fame dad and uh, maybe the all-time greatest college point guard of all time. So being in a, in a household of high achievers and, and being taught how to strive for things and using all of my own basketball experiences and, uh, you know, feeling great about uh, being hired to do a job by the University of Connecticut. And uh, 
you know, being, a, being able to come through on, on the promises that I made when I took the job, which was, I was going to get this program back to its rightful place, uh, you know, where it's fan base and uh, uh, was having an exciting March in April. I know that you understand this and you've had great achievements as a player and a coach up to this point. But I said this last night on the show, one more game and for as great as your dad is and as great as your brother was, you're not just somebody's son and somebody's brother anymore. Now they'll say to your dad, hey, aren't you aren't you Dan Hurley's dad? I mean, that's pretty significant, right? I mean, what's, what's at stake there? Yeah, um, I mean, you try not to let your mind go there. Although I would like to join my dad. He's got multiple national championships at the high school level. So getting one at least would put me in the national championship club with my, with my dad. You know, Bob's got, Bob's got a couple as a player. So I, I, I could go out to dinner with those guys and have my own ring, which would be nice. Um, but I, I think uh, you know, the, the pride that they have in, in what we are accomplishing right now, for, to be able to have them along uh, you know, with me. I know that um, they're so proud of me and they know everything I've been through in the game. Uh, I've had a lot of, lot of downs and certainly a lot of ups. And I know that they're, they're so proud of what I've been able to do. When you think back on that, and I think most everybody's read the article that's out recently, there was a time when you were like, I'm not sure I want to invest my life in basketball. There's a moment then and this moment now. Have you reflected on that at all over the last few days? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of preparation uh, that goes into getting ready for the next game, but uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty deep thinker and I'm an emotional person. And you think about really all the people that helped you get here, you know, when you're, you know, when you're a broken kid at Seton Hall and, uh, you know, you're struggling and, you know, and, and failing and uh, you're going through a lot of things, you know, mental, mentally and emotionally and, um, and the George Blaney's and, uh, and meeting my wife, Andrea, at a time where I needed somebody to come into my life that, that uh, would make me want to be a better man and, uh, and meet Sister Catherine Waters at Seton Hall, um, you know, that in counseling services that you know, helped me with my mental health and helped me to see my value uh, as a human being uh, besides just being an athlete or a basketball player. Um, you know, just uh, I think a lot of the people that, that helped rebuild me uh, you know, to get to this point in life where I you know, still even wanted to be involved in basketball because I, I hated basketball for a while. I hated it. What, so what changed? At what point do you, did you come to terms with it was okay to feel this way and you were comfortable putting yourself out there as, as you have, both with your players and even with us? I think, you know, Meeting my wife Andrea and you know, falling in love with somebody uh, and wanting to be a, a better, better man, or a better person for somebody else, um, you know, and, and then Sister Catherine uh, and Coach Blaney really like, you know, uh, balancing your life. Right, you have your work life or your basketball life. You also have a spiritual side to you, um, and you have a mental, emotional side to you, and your your table's got to be balanced and. Um, and then your identity, you know, your identity can't be solely wrapped up in just your wins and losses and, and, and just your production as a coach or a player. Yeah, I, mean, I take this incredibly personal. I'm absolutely devastated uh, when, we, when we lose a game and it's exhilarating when we win, but uh, it's not my total identity now. Um, and uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother. You know, I'm a friend. I'm a lot of other things besides a basketball coach. How has that helped you get the best out of your players? I think the best coaches oftentimes weren't the greatest players. Um, I think when you've experienced some failure as a player, and, and uh, I think it gives you a much better relatability to an entire roster uh, of players and be able to help them navigate the ups and downs of a season. Um, and I also think it, it puts you in a position where when you're coaching your players and you're in a position that I, I'm in, I think you're thinking about that impact that you want to have 
over the next 40, 50 years uh, of their lives. It's not just strictly the wins and losses and trying to help a, a James Booknight or a Jordan Hawkins become a lottery pick. I think you're you're looking at your entire group and you know wanting to impact their lives the way you know PJ, my father, Coach Blaney, uh, you know prepared me to be successful over the long haul. What do you think you'll be? What's your routine going to be like? And say a couple hours before the game, Monday night. I mean, I'm uh, I'm pretty maniacal with my routine. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I obviously the underwear. Uh, <laughs> tell me, tell me about I, the underwear. I got the go to. Wait, how long? When when did the underwear start? Well, it's been a rotation now. Okay. Um, it, it's it's whoever's hot. You know, I got to you know you put you. Play the hot hand. You run plays for Hawkins when he's hot. If Sonogo's got it going, you throw it inside. You know, the, the, it's really been it's been wolves, it's it's been dragons, and it's been great white sharks. Um, and, and the dragons have had the most successful season. So I'm going to stick with the I'm going to stick with the dragons, even though they're not undefeated. They've had the best overall season, so I went with them for the NCAA tournament. Thankfully. Uh, there, we, we've got the, my wife is able to wash them. Uh, yeah, it, my son for my 50th birth, birthday got me the, uh, the the hand washer, and then obviously we got to blow dry them with the uh, hair dryer, and we hang dry them. Uh, same socks, same shoes, actually the same suit and shirt for every game in the NCAA tournament. Um, and some other things that I don't think we have time to go through the entire day. <laughs> That's just a microcosm, though, of what's going on. Why does that help you? You, you watch like, a, I think, like a, a Rafa Nadal. And, and I think just um, to put your mind at ease, I think you just you go through like routines during the day. You know, for me, it starts with meditation uh, and prayer and exercise and journaling and reading which takes a little bit of that anxiety and edge off uh, when, when the day starts, um, you know, and then obviously you, you have your shoot around, um, you know, you, you I kind of eat the same thing every single day, I'm just a, a creature of habit. And I think it just puts me in a position where if everything is so kind of automatic that I find myself really relaxed going into, into these games, people see a little bit of that like, high intensity and high energy on the sideline. But once I hear that national anthem played, I think I'm uh, I'm in a great place mentally. Hey, you, you've been really open and candid about when you get emotional on the sidelines. How do you think letting people get to know you in a different way not only helps their perception of you, but maybe maybe helps you in recruiting, maybe helps every, every aspect of your life? Yeah, I think... Um, I'm a, I'm a lightning rod for other fan bases. Um, number one, because I win a lot. Mm -hmm. I've won a lot. I've won mm -hmm. a lot in three different places. And um, we're winning big at UConn. So, you know, I, I bring with me uh, a bunch of fan bases that I've probably angered with my intensity and my energy and, and the way my teams play and how energized our whole bench is, it goes beyond just me on the sideline. It's a program that our energy hits you, hits you like, a, like a tsunami in terms of how hard we play and how invested the whole group is in each other. But, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the road that I've taken, I didn't land at UConn. I wasn't gifted a big job after holding a clipboard at a Blue Blood. Um, for a couple of years. I mean, I was a high school coach for nine, coached low division one, coached mid-major, and I've had to earn every job I've ever gotten. And you would think that people uh, would respect that, uh, respect that type of career, um, you know, because I had to truly earn it. Monday night, how do you envision the post game? You guys can win and cut down the nets. What would that moment be like for you. Yeah, I don't. I won't let myself get there uh, one bit. I, I, I truly will not. Um, you just get into this like robotic mode of preparation by this point in the year, where it's like there was a euphoria that ended, you know, sometime uh, around 1 a.m. Where I watched just that one quick San Diego State game before I got to bed, and then you get up super early, 
and you just start hammering out, uh, you know, hammering out the games and looking at all the data and start crafting your game plan. And you just very systematically in a real cold blooded manner, just put together that game plan and not let anyone get ahead of themselves. This is about, you know, playing to our identity. We know if we stray from it even a little bit from what happened in January, that we become very vulnerable. Um, but we also understand that if we're the best version of ourselves on Monday night, we're going to be very hard to beat. Before the season started, we were together at Seth Greenberg's breakfast. And I've recounted all season that Seth was talking about how hard it is to win a single game. <laughs> and you got up and said, man, I was feeling good about our team. Now I'm not sure we're going to win a game. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are one win away from, from, the, from the championship. You think that what was the what was the primary turning point of this season? Yeah, and Seth's one of my he's one of my mentors and uh, you know, he's and a great friend and uh, yeah, I, I think for us um, that, that time in January, I mean, you know, listen, you're in practice, you know, you got a chance to be really good, and uh, November and December, we were we were one of the top two teams in the country. January, uh, not great, but February, March into April. Uh, eliminate that January. We're maybe the best team in the country and um, you don't get anything for that if you don't take care of business on Monday night. But deep down inside, we have that confidence that we know that when we're at our best, uh, that what we bring to the table is very, very hard for anyone to match. Great, man. Thank you for your time. San Diego State's run has been remarkable through this NCAA tournament. Now the Aztecs stand one win away from the national championship. The man who has guided them there is Brian Dutcher. Here is my conversation with him in its entirety and unedited. All the great games in Final Four history, there's never been a win or lose buzzer beater until last night. What were those last milliseconds like for you right before Lamont got off the shot? It's like slow motion, you know? I told the guys, if we create a miss, we're not gonna take a timeout, get it to Lamont, make sure they don't double back and try to steal the outlet, get it to them, Lamont go downhill and make a play. And I had, I didn't have my best offensive lineup, but I had three bigs. So I told mm -hmm. the three bigs, go to the rim. If he misses, we'll tip it in. And I had Micah Parrish and I said, you find space in case they don't locate you, we'll get a three. And they cut Lamont off, they played good defense, but he created his own space and knocked down just an incredible jump shot. Well, was there a moment in there where you were afraid he wasn't going to get the shot off when they cut him off? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He got caught along the baseline. Uh, there was really nobody open. He had to create his own shot. And so I always say marches for players. It's not for coaches. And he made a march play. You, um, you did the trust fall. And then I hear you say that you told him we're not calling a timeout either sort of implies a lot of trust that you have in this team. I know it's a veteran group. Where did you forge that trust in them? You'll let them make the play at the end, sort of uh, symbolized by your willingness to fall back into them after you cut down the nets. You, they've played a ton of basketball. I mean, I've got a six-year senior. I've got fifth-year seniors. You know, I've got juniors. And so they've played a lot of basketball. They've been in a lot of situations. Now, obviously not on the biggest stage, but I felt like they had been through these kind of moments their whole lives, and I just let them enjoy that moment and play free in that moment. Now, your defense was terrific in the comeback last night, and that's what you're built on, but that was a huge deficit. At any point during that game, did you feel like that your team was out of character at all? No, the worst enemy as a player is frustration, and we just never seem to get frustrated. As bad as things can go sometimes, we have a next play mentality. So I don't ever see it in their face. I never see it in their actions on the floor, drop ahead, slump shoulders. They just keep playing. And that always gives us a chance. You know, this is a, a potentially pivotal time in the history of San Diego State Athletics. There's talk of realignment, all of these things. And this opportunity on this stage, not only getting to the final four, but the chance to win a national championship changes the brand. I mean, I know you're thinking about the game, but this is their implications beyond this. What's the significance of this for your basketball program and the university as a whole? First of all, San Diego State University is a terrific place. 
I mean, I think it's the second most applied to school in the country. And with the way we're having success, it might be the most applied to school in the country. Live in San Diego, go to school, and be surrounded by high-level athletics, it's, it's a dream come true. Now, can we make the next step? I don't know. Our biggest opponent's always been ourselves. If we play up to our standard, we'll give ourselves a chance. What's, um, what's the significance of facing UConn for you personally? You've been on the sideline championship early in your career as an assistant. You've been back to championship games in the Final Four, but now an opportunity to win the national championship as the head coach. Yeah, we had another team I thought was capable of winning a national title, and that mm-hmm. was Kawhi Leonard, mm-hmm. and we got by beat by UConn in the Sweet 16, Kemba Walker, and they went and won it all. So we're familiar with UConn, the history of their program, uh, their national titles, and it'll be a tremendous challenge, but one we will be up for. What's the most impressive thing about UConn? They just are so connected offensively. They run, their transition is dangerous, they shoot threes, they post up, and then in the half court, they run multiple sets. They're moving the defense all the time, and they're dangerous at every position. So this is going to be the ultimate challenge. This thing has been a family-type thing, whether it's you and Steve Fisher working together, your relationship with Mark Fisher. What's the significance of that and what you guys have been able to accomplish up to this point? I mean, you're talking a 30-plus-year relationship, nine years at Michigan together, Uh, I'm at San Diego State 24 years, coach with me the whole time. Obviously, the last six, I've been the head coach, but this is family. You know, Mark's family, the Fishers are family, and you always pull for family. You always enjoy family success, and coach is my biggest fan and supporter right now. Would you think of what that might be, that moment might be like Monday night? Where does your mind go to when you visualize after the game, if you've won the national championship. I just want to sit back and watch my team celebrate. You know, I want to watch my coaches celebrate. I want to just almost be a passive observer at that point and just watch all the joy. What what kind of emotion do you think you'll have? Everything you've answered to me, and understand it's it's admirable, but everything has been deflecting toward the players. Why does that work for you? Just because I'm comfortable with myself. You know, I don't feel like uh, I'm 63. I, I know a lot more in my 60s than I knew in my 30s. So now I'm at a point now where what I do is is for others. I'm not doing anything for myself. And that may sound crazy, but I'm here to try to make everybody else's experience better. You've done that. It's great. Thank you. Been good. 